Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Please view our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. Our speaker this evening is a professor of Greek, Latin, history, and patristics at Our Lady of Guadalupe Seminary in Denton, Nebraska. Dr. John Papino also serves as the academic dean for the Veteran Sapientia Institute. His master's degree is in classical Greek and Latin, and his doctorate is in the Fathers of the Church. He has published on the Fathers of the Church and on contemporary church history, particularly on Vatican II and the liturgy in the 20th century. And he has taught many courses, both for the ICC and for our Magdala Apostolate. It is a great pleasure to welcome back uh, to the Institute of Catholic Culture, Dr. John Papino. Um, I'm especially looking forward to maybe a little preview of what's coming up uh, in, in the coming year at the ICC. We're going to be hosting Dr. Papino for uh, a year-long study of the Church Fathers. So this is going to be a fun way, you know, to, we're going to jump back in time here uh, to talk about Rome, and then hopefully this piques your interest and you can join us for his course later next year. But welcome, Dr. Papino. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. Could you uh, open us in prayer today? Certainly. And uh, I'll do so in the language of the Roman Empire. How about that? In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tu in mulieribus et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Santa Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et in ora mortis nostre. Amen. In nomine Patris, et Filii, et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. So Amen. yes, that was Latin, the language of a small village of people on a hill between a marsh and a river. And that little hamlet was to form the West in preparation, really, for the coming of Christ. Quick aside. Why do we think of the Roman Empire? That was the question Peter was asking. Well, for us, it's important. For the church, it's important because we inherit it, its forms, its language, its law, uh, even the way the priest dresses at mass, Roman influence. And the reason for that is not fortuitous. It is because in the fullness of time, the Messiah was born, and this was in a very specific place and a very specific time. The three great cultures had come together, by which I mean the Hebrew, the Greek, and the Roman. The Hebrews, of course, gave revelation to the world. God spoke to Abraham and to various prophets and others down the line, and it was from them that the Messiah was to be born. The Greeks provided the philosophical idiom and the philosophical ideas to understand what this God-man was and what he was saying. In the beginning was the Logos, says St. John. And the Romans provided law and infrastructure, so that when, our, when Christianity spread, it spread on the roads and the seafaring ways 
that the Romans had established. No Roman Empire, Christianity could not have spread as it did. For example, St. Paul, in chains, was brought to Rome by boat. This could not have happened if there wasn't an entire civilization that had been around for 773 years to get the thing going. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. The expansion of empire from this little hamlet on a hill to the entire Mediterranean basin and beyond. We are going to focus on the West tonight, as the title of the lecture indicates. Just the, the West, the Latin-speaking West, because that's just our remit tonight. And we're going to go through the military conquests. Then we're going to see how the Romans turned the peoples whom they conquered, the barbarians, into Latin-speaking Romans, ultimately Roman citizens in the entire empire. How that laid the groundwork then for the spread of Christianity and the emergence of Christianity with that specific Latin Roman stamp that it acquires in the West. And then we'll briefly talk at the end of the lecture of the so-called collapse of the Roman Empire, the shrinking of it, and its succession, namely when these non-Latin, most often non-Catholic, Germanic peoples inherited the Roman Empire, but they didn't get rid of it. They kept its institutions, which allowed the church then to go right through that so-called collapse, undiminished really, and to grow and, and, be, and keep being what it had always been. So that's the overarching thing. Uh, another thing I want to, just before we begin, is the meaning of the word barbarian, okay? Because it sounds nasty. It is not a compliment when you call someone you know, when there's a teenage teenager on your front lawn, if you call him a, a barbarian, it's not a compliment. What is the meaning of the word barbarian? It simply means someone who does not speak the languages of empire, which were two, Greek and Latin. Everyone else is a barbarian, even if they have a civilization of their own. We can see the Carthaginians, they had a civilization of their own. So they're not barbarians from that point of view, although aspects of their civilization were barbaric. But even in the writings of, um, of Christians in the 2nd century AD, 3rd century AD, they will speak of Greek philosophy and barbarian philosophy. And by, by, by barbarian philosophy, they mean the Old Testament, because it's the non-Greek or Roman philosophy, if you like. So I want to take the sting a little bit out of the term barbarian for now. Now, I'm going to show you some paintings quickly, just to have an overview, because I love these paintings. And these paint they're paint they're Cole's paintings. So the first painting you're going to see here, okay. This is by so it's by Cole. And what it represents is the very beginning, well, pre-civilizational uh man. You see a man in the foreground with a um a bow, and I don't know if you can see it if you because I see panelists, but you see some teepees. This would, I suppose, be before Rome even beca became a settlement, maybe a few tents. In the next frame, you see this artist's view. Here we are. Things are getting civilized. Notice that there's a building in the back. It's very simple. It's a temple because culture starts with cultus, worship. And agriculture, commerce, a town, an altar, a god to worship, or several gods to worship. That is the beginning of civilization. And then it can develop into something truly gorgeous, majestic, imperial in the next frame, 
This is the artist's view. Okay, so this is not any actual place. It's a mixture of styles, but this is what we imagine when we think of the grandeur of Rome, is it not? Look at it. Plenty of commerce. You see the ships. Again, temples are there. And the whole thing is looked over by a statue that looks like it might be a statue of, of the goddess of reason, of thinking, Minerva, perhaps. And uh, you see that there's a king in a procession at the front. This is the apogee of civilization. But of course, it won't last. Next frame. And here we have the barbarians taking over the same place. You'll notice the, the, there's the statue of a, of a warlike god. He's been decapitated. The civilization cannot defend itself anymore. And these foreigners, these barbarians, are destroying the place. And in the end, what are we left with in this series of paintings? Ruins. Nothing is left. Okay, so I think these paintings correspond roughly to the idea we have of the birth, development, apogee, fall, and ruin of the Roman Empire. And it's mostly mostly mythical, but I just wanted to give you that as a framework. Now let's get back to brass tacks, the Romans. Now, of course, I can't get into too much detail. We don't have all that much time. But early on in its history, so this little hamlet of Roman, of with their own, they speak a, a, a dialect of Italic called Latin. They're ruled by kings. The last of their kings is expelled in a coup in the year 510 AD. The kings belong to the Etruscan race, which had been the main civilization in northern, central and northern Italy before Rome grew. There also were Greek colonies and other little tribes all over the place. They get rid of their kings in 510 AD, BC. Rome is now a republic. It has the beginnings of republican institutions, a senate, consuls, voting. And as these Etruscans wane, the Romans grow to fill the void, and there'll be wars and alliances. I'll show you a map now that shows you how Italy, Italy herself slowly becomes Roman. So you see where Rome is there in the middle, that very dark red. That's about the year 500. By 338, the rest of the red, the decision is not so obvious, is what the Romans are controlling. They go through, the area around Rome is called Latium. Latium. The, the it's, today is called Lazio, the province in Italy. And so there are wars, alliances, several battles. There's an alliance against Rome. It's called the Latin Alliance. But then they, the Romans will ally with them to get at the mountain tribes that are pestering them. And this is the beginnings of the Romans learning how to do things right. And you're going to see that throughout their development. They learn from their enemies and from their mistakes how to do things right the next time. And this very beginning is where they learn the famous maxim, divide and conquer. It is by dividing tribes from tribes, allying with one to get the other one, and moving along like this. That's one thing. They also learn that you can't simply conquer a people and then leave it. They learn that it is best once you conquer a zone and you, know, you defeat the enemy, you have some sort of a, a pact that becomes perhaps an alliance, but then you establish colonies of your own citizens nearby. You send people out and you make towns with your, your own kin in them. Colonization. In the sense of founding actual towns and villages of your own people. And 
this is going to influence the area they have defeated. So a, a, a victory becomes a peaceful conquest, if you will. And the Romans will influence and be influenced by the peoples among whom they establish colonies, culturally, economically, and militarily. And so they're going to go throughout Italy, and there will be turning points. One turning, the, the first gamble of the Romans is a 10-year siege. It takes place from 505, I beg your pardon, from 405 BC to 395, a 10-year siege, just like the siege of Troy. And if we can take a look at that map again, the town they're going to attack is just on the other side of the Tiber. If we zoom in a bit, if you look, see where Rome is, now just north and a little bit west of Rome, you see that dot? That's the first time town beyond the Tiber that they take. And at the time that they do so, it is an Etruscan town. Rome was exhausted from trying to conquer other places already. But they put everything they had left in conquering this town. And the gamble worked. No one, no, the Etruscans are too weak to help that town. It's called Veii. Ten years of siege, and they win through engineering. They dig a tunnel underneath it and get in. And that is how they take it, kind of a Trojan horse. So they are engineers, they're learning engineering, and they're learning how to think on their feet and be adaptable in terms of strategy. That town alone doubled the area they had and doubled their wealth. If they hadn't been able to do that, perhaps we never would have had a Roman Empire. So there was a gamble and it worked. And then there's the great setback, 390 BC. So, so not long after they've managed to, to do this feat here, a tribe of Gauls, barbarians, comes down over the Alps, down through the north of Italy. They're heading for wherever they can go. The Romans confront them on the banks of the River Allia. A full Roman levy, all the fighting men are there, plus some auxiliaries, not Romans, but from, the, from Latium, hence Latins, around the place. It is a pitiful defeat. It will be known as the Dies Ater, the black day, the dark day, the day with a black blot on it. Why? Because the Gauls have been able to, to overcome the military strategy that the Romans used at the time, which was the kind of tactic on the field that the Greeks had, had been using, and that were so useful, in fact, to Alexander the Great, but they didn't work here. The phalanx of spears, in other words, having all your infantrymen with long spears in front of them, could not deal with an infantry that simply walked up to the spears and got them out of the way, and they had these long swords, so they just walked down the shafts of the long spears and massacred the Roman soldiers. Also, the Romans discovered that simply to have in addition to this phalanx, a single line of soldiers doesn't work because the enemy can dash right through it, come back around you, stab you in the back. So they rethink their tactics. And of course, this is the beginning of a process, but to cut the story short, they form a new way of standing in battle. There will be lines. First line, men with slingshots. And then the next lines, instead of being just a solid line, is going to be made up of maniples, discrete units. They look like rectangles on maps with signs, like flags would call them, that can, through the blowing of a trumpet, be directed to move. 
it is adaptable and elastic. It can absorb an onslaught, surround the enemy, and rush in upon him. Or it can be formed into a wedge to attack an enemy line. Also, they're going to develop new a new kind of weapon. The infantrymen will have two pila, it's the plural of pilum, meaning a longish spear, but not as in the phalanx, the kind of spear that you put in the ground and hope to you know, poke the cavalryman as he attacks. No, these are more like javelins that can be thrown. They're about, I don't know, 10 to 12 feet long. And they have a long metal piece at the front that's very slender with an arrowhead type of, a type of shape at the end. These go right through the enemy shield, and they can actually kill the man. And if somehow they go through the shield and the man is able to, to dodge the point and, and not be hurt by it, it stays wedged in that shield. And they just have to, if they want to do anything, the enemy just has to drop his shield and is now fighting without a shield. And sometimes the metal was designed in such a way that it would bend and make it even more difficult and not usable again by the foe. Sometimes that happened. We're not so sure that's actually was done on purpose. They didn't need to. The thing itself worked well enough. So that's the pilum. And then also every soldier had a shortish sword that allowed him to be very nimble, and they practiced a lot at using it. Then behind them, there would be the long spears still in use. And also... This is the time when the Romans realized we must protect ourselves better, and they designed a new kind of shield. Originally, like every other people in the Mediterranean world, they had a nice round shield, a buckler. It is after the defeat at the hands of the Gauls in 390 that they're going to design the rectangular curved shield that we know so well, and that in turn allows them to form tortoise shells and sort of nearly defensive works right on the field. They're also going to build a wall around Rome this time, which they hadn't. And the reason for this is that the Gauls did, in fact, take Rome. And they I mean, there are stories with geese honking and things. But the Romans are forced to pay off the Gauls, who then settle in northern Italy. Northern Italy, by the way, becomes Gallic at this time. It becomes what the Romans will call Cisalpine Gaul. Uh, Caesar's going to have to deal with that. So north of the Po up there, it's all Gallic-speaking peoples who settle. Another thing the Romans learn about warfare is that, okay, playtime is over. We need to be serious about how we fight. A businesslike approach to warfare is adopted, rigorous drilling to make the maniples work. In other words, these soldiers become what we think of as soldiers today, men who obey like this and can, as on parade, move around in this sort of elegant and malleable tool, which is the, the army in the field. Think of the marching bands that could be so clever, you know, at football games. It, it would be something like that to behold. And also, part of the Roman discipline, death penalty for infractions in the army. You sleep on duty, death penalty. By the way, that's why the guards of our Lord's tomb was, were, had to be bribed to say that they fell asleep on the job. And also death penalty for breaking ranks. In other words, even if in the thrill of the battle, you were to rush forward to fight, the Roman general did not reward your bravery. He had you killed for breaking rank and disobeying. It really was a war machine that they were building. And that's what's going to allow them to take over the world. So, the, And in fact, that was the last time that Rome herself was taken by an enemy. So that's in uh, 
390, 390s, until the year 410 AD, about eight centuries, no foreign army penetrates Rome. So when it happens in 410, it was a very big deal. St. Jerome cries, St. Augustine cries, everyone cries, 410 AD. From this time to that, no one invades. So after this, the Romans go from victory to victory. There's another Latin war, and they grow and so forth and so on. And I'll just mention one famous event in 340 BC. They take a port town called Ancium. If you look at the map, Ancium, there's still, you know, there's kind of a rebellion from the Latins. Ancium is just um, one fourth of the way from Rome to Naples. Do you see it? So there's Rome, then you go down the Tiber to Ostia, and then there's Ancium. Okay. Now, so Antium was a port town, and Antium was home to a bunch of pirate ships. They were kind of a pirating people, which uh, made it difficult for the Romans to do business. When the Romans take Antium, they break up those ships, and they take the prows of the ships, you know, with the mermaid and so forth, or the or the a brass beak, or whatever kind of device they might have, and they bring them back to Rome, and they're going to decorate the political speaker's platform in the forum with these they call rostra. It means a beak or the mouth, you know. And that is where we get the name the rostra, because the speakers were on a platform with all of the front of the ships there. It's from this battle, 340 Andium. Most people know that the rostra have, have prows of taken ships. Few people know that it goes all the way back to 340 BC. That's when they took those prows. So by about 264, Rome has all of BC. Rome has all of Italy now except for the Gallic part up north. The Republican form of government has been uh, getting better through various laws and amendments. There there have been some tension among the social classes, and there are laws that help deal with that. The people have a voice, they have tribunes and things. So as Rome expands, it also becomes just better, not only militarily, but also administratively and politically. So Italy is under Roman hegemony. But it's a patchwork of non-Roman cities which are allied, and then again, the famous colonies. And the establishment of colonies is going to last until the second century AD, and then it's going to change a bit. So how did then, and this is the point of the story, how did Italy become Roman? Well, what does it mean to become Roman anyway? Well, it means to speak Latin. It means to worship the gods of Rome which won't be difficult. The colonies always had a temple to Jupiter, Venus, Apollo, whatever local divinity. The Latins acknowledged, or the other Italians, the Oscans, the Umbrians, all these people, acknowledged that the gods of Rome were true and mighty, and they recognized their own gods in them. And in fact, they might exchange the name. Other you know, little things, the way you dress, the way you eat. And the, the Romanization of these people happened through imitation, through intermarriage, and through the army. Because Rome does not tax, somewhat, I think wisely, it does not tax its allies, but it does impose levies, meaning you have to send your young men to us to fight, which means that they're integrated, and many states do that use the military in this way, to homogenize the people, right? And uh, so that's going to happen. Military service Romanizes the soldiers. And then when they go home, or when they in turn are sent in colonies, they Romanize the areas where they go. So much for Italy. Let's keep moving. Expansion beyond the sea. Rome is going to move and start taking islands. Sicily, Corsica, Sardinia. 
and is going to do so in the context of the first great clash, the first Punic War. Next slide, please. So what you see here in red is the Roman Republic, allies, colonies, and so forth. You'll see it doesn't go too far north because the Cisalpine Alpine Gauls are up there. And then you have the Carthaginian Empire in purple. And so the Carthaginians, they're originally Phoenicians. They come from the well, they come from what is would be now part of Israel, Palestine, towns like Sidon and Tyre. They worship Astarte and Baal and Moloch. There is child sacrifice. It has long been debated by scholars. Archaeologists say, look, there's no doubt. There are these clay pots filled with babies' bones. And people say, well, but those babies, maybe they died in childbirth. No, there are knife marks. And furthermore, there are also bones, bones of sacrificial animals in there, as well as of babies. It's terrible. And the Romans hate human sacrifice, by the way. So there's a, some kind of a rebellion in Sicily. They call for help. It's Syrac the kingdom of Syracuse is bothering them. And this little town appeals to help both to Carthage and to Rome, and it's the Romans who are going to come. Then the Carthaginians send a garrison. So you have the Carthaginians and the Romans both sending a garrison to help this town of Mamertines. They were the Swiss of the time. They were mercenaries. And so the Romans say, well, we're here. Let's take over. They take over Syracuse, and they take over the Carthaginian areas of Sicily. And they're going to be victorious just off the coast of Sicily. There's some islands there. And ultimately, they are going to defeat Carthage under rather um, harsh terms. And that's the end of the First Punic War in about 237. And the Carthaginians are going to resent it. And they'll raise their children to hate Rome, particularly one little boy named Hannibal. We'll get back to him. In the meantime, Rome is going to spread a bit along the Illyrian coast. So it's going to go around up there into Yugoslavia. They turn Sicily and Sardinia. So it, next slide, please. I think that's the one we want. Okay. So this is after the First Carthaginian War, you can see what the Romans have. So they're going to turn then Sicily and Sardinia into provinces. Now, by the way, what does that mean? Because that's part of the process of Romanization. Initially, provincia doesn't mean a place, a province. It means a portfolio, a remit. You'll be in charge of doing this and that. And in these new lands, the Roman in charge, the man in charge, was often simply the officer in charge of the local garrison would also be given the provincia to make sure that the places are, don't rebel against Rome and are peaceful. And uh, there may be taxation. Of course, while he's there, because their engineers, he's going to start building, making roads and things, maybe an aqueduct. So the people like that, all well, the roads increase commerce. And also because he's the, since he's the most powerful man in town, the locals spontaneously start turning to the general of the garrison for judicial purposes, to settle major cases between them. They say, well, we disagree. And everyone we know, of course, is either on your side or my side. Why don't we go to the Roman general? He's impartial. So they become judges. And taxation begins like this. At first, the general essentially is shaking down the locals. Give me money or my soldiers will come and burn your house down. And it got really bad. In so Sicily, Sardinia, Corsica. So the Roman Senate intervened and said, you can't do that anymore. And the Roman general says, what, I'm supposed to pay my soldiers with my own money then? No. We're going to organize taxation, and it's all going to be square and fair, and there'll be rules. 
You can farm out taxation to locals. Well, that's fine. And that's the origin of the publicans, okay, who are so hated by everyone in the in Acts and with our Lord. And that ultimately is how a prov- these provinces start this way. And ultimately, little by little, they're kind of building the, fl- the plane as they fly, the Romans. They're going to organize provinces with a staff, a proper governor, and the whole thing will be organized properly. Now, the Romans also ally. They see Carthage, and they know Carthage hates them. There's a Cold War. They ally with a town on the east coast of Spain called Saguntum. And in 220, so after this, there's going to be a, a second war with the Carthaginians in 220. And from that time, 220, for the next 53 years, Rome will make herself mistress of the Mediterranean. The Greek historian Polybius, writing sometime later, wrote, Can anyone be so indifferent or idle as not to care to know by what means, under what kind of polity, Almost the whole inhabited world was conquered and brought under the dominion of the single city of Rome. And that, too, within a period of not quite 53 years. Or again, can be so completely absorbed, can a man be so completely absorbed in other subjects of contemplation or study as to think any of them superior in importance, these other pursuits, to the accurate understanding of an event for which the past affords no precedent. In other words, historians, ancient historians, saw this period we're now going to embark on as being unbelievable. So what happens is, so Hannibal, the boy I mentioned, he's now grown up, he's a general. He takes Saguntum, the town, the Carthaginians are expanding in Spain. They take Saguntum, ally of the Romans. The Romans have to respond, 218 BC. Hannibal responds, he invades Italy with his um, yeah, so here we are, the beginning. You see Saguntum right there. It's near the Balearic Island. So, the distinct, by the way, you can see there's a limit to the Carthaginian Empire just now. The Ebro River, still there, of course. It's a very wide river filled with gigantic fish. It's a perfect border river. But Saguntum is on the other side. Hannibal takes it. Hannibal, now, Carthage and Rome are now in a hot war. Hannibal invades. He's got his elephants. He goes through the Pyrenees. He goes through the south of Gaul. He goes through the Ro- the, the Greek colonies of the south of Gaul, Massilia, Antipolis, Nicaea. You know, there's Marseille, Antibes, and Nice. He crosses the Alps. He goes from victory to victory. Hannibal is an astounding general. I'm just reading his life right now as it happens. He's, he's amazing. Uh, two famous battles where the Romans are defeated. Lake Trasimene in 217. Cannae, the Battle of Cannae, terrible defeat for the Romans. They get encircled and massacred, 216. And at this point, the Carthaginians ally with the Macedonians. The Carthaginians are looking to the older, mightier civilizations of the East, the Alexandrian Hellenistic East. In fact, there's going to be a war between Macedonia, Philip V, and Rome. I'm not going to go too far into that because I'm not dealing with the East, but that's just kind of the in for Rome to start taking over Greece and so forth and so on. In 2003, Hannibal is recalled to Carthage despite his victories. He never took Rome. Carthage is under threat. The Romans just sent what they had in terms of forces and a great general to North Africa to take Carthage. Hannibal is called back. 
And there the great defeat takes place at Zama. You see Zama there, North Africa, where Tunisia is. There's a big battle there. And it's a big defeat to the Carthaginians, 202 BC. And now Carthage will be subject to Rome with oppressive rules. And this has allowed the Romans to take Spain. Rome has Spain now. Carthage, it's a terrible defeat. They're not allowed to wage war against anyone in the Mediterranean, and they cannot wage war in Africa against other Africans without Rome's permission. Furthermore, you'll notice in the pink area in Italy that Roman power is farther north now. Why? Because those Gallic Celts up there of Cisalpine Gaul, some of those tribes had allied with Hannibal when he was coming, and as punishment, Rome takes them over too. So that's how we have this. Now we can say Rome is an empire. And indeed, the th there will be a third Punic War a bit later in 149. And what happens is the poor Carthaginians, they were being attacked by the Numidians, and they couldn't fight in Africa without Rome's permission. Rome didn't give its permission because it didn't care. And Cato is always saying, Carthago delenda est, we must destroy Carthage. So ultimately, Carthage disobeys. It does engage in war locally in Africa, not against the Romans. The Romans come over and they turn Africa into a province now. So Africa, meaning Tunisia, becomes a Roman province. So the Mediterranean is being encircled by Roman provinces now. So conclusion so far, by the, by the 190s BC, Italy is entirely under Roman sway. The north is will be turned into two provinces actually by AD 71. And that is going to allow, Italy is going to be right for Christianity later. We'll get to that in a moment. Africa, Roman province. Julius Caesar, to whom we shall get in a minute, rebuilds Carthage. It will be the fourth largest city in the empire. But since it's rebuilt by the Romans, it is a Roman city. North Africa is Romanized and Latinized. The locals still retain their language to some degree, which is Phoenician. It's a Semitic language. Uh, and it's a language that St. Augustine will know. He'll be bilingual Latin and this other language, Phoenician. But if you look, this is the time the Romans really developed North Africa. And they use, and this is typical of the West, not only uh, North Africa, but Spain and Gaul as well. The Romans build Roman cities that are all designed on the same plan. If you live in the, in the western end of the Midwest, as I do here in Lincoln, Nebraska, you're familiar with this process where the, the train line goes through and exactly every 50 miles, you have a grid town with a square in the middle the court, you know, and so forth. That's what they do. Every 50 miles, roughly, less, well, it depends on the train, there's going to be a Roman town built on a grid with a forum. Often they start as camps with a forum in the middle and a checkerboard design of streets the temple, Roman institutions, a theater, an aqueduct if needed, and administered by Romans, peopled first maybe by a few Roman soldiers who settled there, colonists from Italy, and then the locals will come in to enjoy civilized life and become Romanized. North Africa is part of the Latin province. St. Augustine is from there, St. Cyprian, Tertullian, all these great Latin writing fathers of the church are all North Africa. Now, the Romans are going to build a, a, a wall in North Africa between what they have developed and the barbarians beyond. Keep that in mind for later. 
inscriptions are bilingual, and people spoke Latin in North Africa well into the Islamic uh, presence. Italy will, and that is going to help with Christianization down the line. Uh, religion, the Romans are very open-minded, except when it comes to human sacrifice. But generally speaking, the Romans are very, they allow everyone to worship all the gods, as long as you worship the gods of Rome. Spain, Celtic peoples there, Iberians, Basques, and so forth, they will be Romanized. After the Second Punic War, we saw that map, you'll take the Romans about a century to occupy all of the Iberian Peninsula, modern-day Spain and Portugal. And by the first century AD, the peninsula is entirely Latin-speaking. The Iberian nobility, the Spanish nobility, is brought into the senatorial class of Rome, and there are famous Latin writers from Spain, Seneca, first century AD, the Stoic philosopher, Spanish. Emperor Hadrian, who reigns in the first third of the second century, Spanish. Trajan, just before Hadrian, Spanish. Theodosius, the emperor who declares Catholic Orthodoxy the religion of the Roman Empire in 380, Spanish. The bishop who catechized Constantine the Great, Osius, Spanish, all Latin speakers. Now Rome holds the Mediterranean. They call it, they don't call it the Mediterranean, they call it the Mare Nostrum, our sea. Now, we need to look very quickly at the north. Next picture, please. Julius Caesar goes on a campaign. You see what he's doing there just very quickly? 58 to 49 BC Gaul. Gaul is going, so he takes Gaul. It's going to be a Roman province in BC 27, first administered by Mark Antony. And indeed, Antoninus Pius, another emperor, is from this area. So it, it, it Romanizes pretty fast. It's divided up into provinces, and Latin spreads fast in the upper classes first. Gaulish is going to ruin spoken. But again, there's going to be Romanization going there pretty quickly, so that in fact, everyone's going to speak, will be at least be able to speak Latin as well as Gaulish by the time Christianity comes along. You'll notice he reaches the Germans, Caesar does. He reaches Koblenz, he reaches the Germans just north of Switzerland, and those are going to be made into Roman provinces as well, the Germania provinces. Now, the Romans are going to try to go beyond the Rhine and far into Germany. That will not last. Hermann, the German, is going to de defeat them at a great battle that all Germans know about, the Teutberg Forest Battle. But the fact is that we are going to have a Latin Roman presence, well organized. And one of the great towns that they found, which begins as a colony, a colonia, and it's a colony especially dear to the, to the Augustus, the emperor, Colonia Augusta, which becomes in German, Köln, Colonia Köln. We use the French word Cologne, Cologne, which is the archbishopric of which uh, Archbishop and Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger will be the archbishop in the 20th century. So that goes back to there. So Bavaria, the uh, western end of Bavaria, is going to be part of this civilization. Latin will be spoken there too. And then you see the incursion into Britain by, by Julius Caesar in 55. He doesn't stay long. It's not really a conquest. The actual conquest takes place under Claudius, emperor, 40s. And then ultimately, next picture, please, as far as the end, as the walls. Oops, sorry. Well, let's look at this for a minute. Here you have Gaul divided up into provinces. In the south, you see Gallia Narbonensis, where Narbonne is. Then you see Aquitania. 
And then these various goals, Gallia Lugdunensis, Belgica. And then you see the Germania in purple in the, in the northeast. And these provinces with their administrations, by the way, they divided into smaller units, which the Romans call dioceses. So the diocese is a Roman imperial subdivision of a province. And of course, the church follows suit. And the capital of the diocese of the administration becomes also the residence of the bishop later on. So they see there's a bleeding through. As an aside, I'll say, I'll say this. St. Thomas Aquinas, in his commentary on Second Thessalonians, says, the Roman Empire never died. It just went from being an earthly empire to a spiritual empire, meaning the church. That's why we're studying the Roman Empire tonight. So how did Romanization in... Uh, and by the way, Britain became four provinces. So provinces don't have to be very big. How was Britain run? And I'm going to take Britain as an example, but it applies also to the Germanies and other places too. Three kinds of cities, towns, municipalities, colonies, often beginning as Roman camps, and then the Romans, the soldiers just stay there. And that's where they, Castra, and as you know, the word Chester in English comes from Castra, Roman camp, Manchester, Colchester, Chichester, all the Chesters. And if you look at an aerial map of the Chester towns, there are always two roads that cross at a 90 degree angle right in the middle, Roman colonies. Then there were municipalities such as what would later become St. Albans with Latin rites. This is where there'd be a blend of Roman soldier colonists and locals who are on the way to becoming equal to a colony. You see, they're Romanizing. There'll be a temple there, they wash, there are baths, maybe they, they teach their sons Latin. And thirdly, you have the Civitates, which were simply, the Romans might group together some, some uh, British villages and tell the local British non-Roman nobility, okay, you're in charge, we just want taxes, you can send your kids to Rome for a free education, they'll come back speaking Latin, and maybe that'll help you get on the way. So there is a three-tiered system where you could go up the line. This is a system that was also used in Africa by the French and Belgian colonial empires where you could be an, what they called an evolved native who spoke French, was Christian, moved up the ranks. You had that happening. The Romans did it too. And that is how the barbarians of Britain and other places too were Romanized. And the last one, the last place, next map, please. So we'll see how far, first there'll be Britain on, in the next map, I think, Peter, where we can see how far the Romans made uh, before. Yeah. So you know the walls, there's Hadrian's Wall and Antonine's Wall. Okay to keep out the northern non-Latin speaking peoples, the barbarians. Next slide, please. So there's Germany. So I don't know if I don't know whether you can see where we are. There's Holland there in the north. You can see that that big um, inlet. And this was the original occupation of the Germany. So we're well into Belgium and parts of Germany here, the Netherlands. And then that red line is the actual frontier. And that's ultimately where they'll the place they'll have to hide behind the Romans. They're not going to be to hold on to all of that completely. Next slide, please. Right. So here we have Rome and the Roman Empire at its greatest extent. And the one, so you see Britain there going up to the wall. And then if you look, actually, it's right in the middle of the map. There's Dacia. Do you see that? Dacia. That is conquered in 106 AD. It's one of the last conquests. And they did this in Germany and here. 
they would transplant other populations in. This is something they did with their army, with the colonies, is that if you were an Egyptian who joined the, if say the Romans raised an Egyptian legion, they would station it in Germany or Switzerland or Spain and vice versa. So that you, the only language you have is Latin. You can't, you see what I mean? You settle, so to speak to the natives, so everyone has to become Roman a bit. And it is also here in Dacia that the Romans will withdraw soonest in 273 because the Goths, a Germanic people, originally from Denmark and southern Sweden, are putting pressure there. And in fact, this is where in the 250s, Emperor Decius, the great persecutor of the church, he's going to die fighting the Goths. So the locals in Dacia are left to fend for themselves, but somehow the Romanization had taken so well that they will speak Latin there to this day. And that country is Romania. They'll be surrounded by Slavs. Somehow they'll be able to keep their own language and culture. So this is the greatest empire. Now, so we have everyone is Latin speaking, Romanized to a greater or lesser extent. By the third century, all free men who live in the empire are officially citizens of the empire. So it's one big happy empire, if you will. And this is how Christianity is going to spread. So that's the legacy of Rome. And how does Christianity spread? It uses the roads. It uses the sea. The seas had been made safe. Pompey, this is first century BC, had got rid of the pirates. You can, you can travel safely. And then it spreads. Now, there are several explanations for this, for the um, spread of Christianity. I'll just mention a few. There's the, the Rodney Stark, he's, he's a famous sociologist, claims that it's, it's really the corporal acts of mercy that converted people to Christianity. They would actually see Christians feeding widows and, and orphans and things. They wanted that. Others say Will Durant, the famous historian, I have several of his books up here. Uh, he believed it was that Christianity was more intellectually satisfying, perhaps more pleasing. And it's true that paganism by the first century AD wasn't cutting it because paganism is really actually quite archaic and rural, agricultural, and the inhabitants of a heavily urbanized empire didn't really follow it anymore. They didn't really believe it anymore. There were mystery cults that promised the moon and secrecy, but they were reserved for an elite. So Christianity really was the only thing that could fill the void spiritually. Also, uh, the behavior of Christians in the face of martyrdom converted many. And another thing is this, we don't think of this very much, but the ancient world is one in which people believed in the supernatural. And they believed in gods and genies, nymphs. And they also believed that some diseases, particularly psychological ones, were caused by the possession by an evil genius or demon. And they saw Christian priests exorcise the possessed in the name of Jesus Christ, and they saw it work. And we know this because the great second century apologists often will tell, they write to the emperor these letters that are meant to be read by everyone. You know the power of the name of Jesus Christ because you have seen that name expel demons. They can take it for granted. So that's, that aspect is not often brought up. So I'm bringing it up. But all of these things. And ultimately, there is okay, Constantine converts, he sees a sign. He's, there's a civil war, can't get into detail. But in this civil war, Constantine is told by vision that he will conquer in the sign of the cross. He puts the cross on his soldiers' helmets and those famous shields. He defeats his opponent, 28th, 29th of October, 312, north of Rome, and he attributes his victory to Christ. This is a big change. So the persecutions end, and 
slowly Christianity now becomes fashionable, widespread. As I mentioned, by the year 380, it is made the official language of the empire. There are churches everywhere, basilicas. The church can breathe. The bishops become important people in the social life of of every town. And so the, the Roman Empire, in a sense, has performed its function. It has provided Christianity with a matrix within which to spread. And then it's going to come to an end. Emperor Diocletian, in the late third century, divides the empire in two for administrative purposes. But this is going to cause the two sides to separate more and more. As it was, they were quite distinct. And now they're going to be more so. They're going to go their own way. And in some ways, this explains the later division between Orthodox and Catholic. The Germans, for various reasons, these Germanic tribes are putting pressure on the borders. You know the story. The empire is is not designed to withstand that kind of pressure, particularly when the Huns come up behind the Germanic tribes and put pressure on them. People wonder, why did the Roman Empire crumble in the West? And many crazy theories don't believe the lead pipe theory. That That doesn't hold up. But part of the reason is that it was simply not designed to withhold the kind of pressure it got throughout the fifth century. And so that's one thing. Another thing is that the army had increasingly become home to foreign soldiers who were hoping to become colonists themselves. They wanted to become Romans. All of these Germanic peoples who came into the empire did not seek to destroy or replace the empire. They wanted to be in the empire. So they were not like the news right now, for those who who watch this in the future, is that Hamas has invaded Israel and killed people with a view, I think, to destroying Israel. That's not what these Goths, Ostrogoths, Visigoths, Vandals even, Franks, Burgundians, Alemanni, Thuringians. No, they were more like immigrants. The immigrants who come to the US and cross the, the Rio Grande, they come not to destroy America. They want to join America. And that's what these Goths wanted too. But it's not going to work. There's one famous thing that happens actually later on, and it is this. It's terrible. Actually, it takes us close to Romania. The Goths were were attacked by the Huns. They begged the Romans to let them in. The Romans let them in onto this side of the Danube, and they set up a refugee camp. Sounds familiar. And the refugee camp is put under the control of the local garrison. So there's a general with his officers and his soldiers, and they're supposed to babysit these Gothic uh, refugees. And of course, this invites corruption. There happens to be it happens to be a time in Rome when things are a bit in disarray. They're not getting the rations of wheat to feed the refugees, so the refugees are hungry. The Roman officers see an opportunity. They say, "Oh, we'll give you meat. We'll give you dogs to eat, but each dog will cost you two of your children." whom we shall enslave. This is oppression. The Goths rebel. They manage to get weapons somehow. And there's a well-known battle in in 379 at Hadrianople, in which they defeat the Roman soldiers and kill the emperor Valens. And at this point, they go on a rampage throughout the empire. And ultimately, the empire says, okay, look, stop your rampage. We'll give you territory. And that's what's happening throughout the 400s. The Roman emperor is giving to German tribes, places to settle within the empire, whether to buy them off, as in the case of these Goths, they'll become Visigoths, or 
because they have been auxiliary troops in the Roman army against other barbarians. And as a thank you for their service, they're given part of the empire to inhabit. Let's take a look at the next map now, please. And so ultimately, this is the division that you're going to end up with in the West. You'll notice that the East in yellow remains Roman. Italy falls under King Odoacer with a ragtag band of various Germanic peoples. And what happens there is that the Emperor of Byzantium sends one of his generals to oust Odoacer. And that general simply takes over the Kingdom of Italy for himself. And he will be given the title King of Italy by the Emperor of Byzantium. That's fine. You are now a Roman nobleman. You're allowed to have the title of Kingdom of Italy, but you're really my governor. Yes? Okay, fine. And that is going to happen all over the West. You see the Visigoths, they were first given Aquitania as a thank, uh, to, to keep them from further depredations. Then they were asked to kick the Vandals out of Spain for Rome, which they did. That's why the Vandals went into North Africa and besieged the city of Hippo, even as Augustine was dying on his deathbed. And then the Visigoths say, well, we like it, we'll stay. And they make this kingdom. The Franks are coming down in 476. They're going to take the north of France. The purple bit, Dominion of Siagris, that's a, a Roman general who made himself king of that area. He called himself King of the Romans. And this is the age of King Arthur. This is the age of the great myths, also of the German peoples. Wagner uses a lot of this stuff. So we have a breakup here. But don't let this map lead you astray. What really remains is the idea of empire. All of these kings saw themselves merely as administering portions of the Roman Empire. They kept Roman coinage. The Visigothic Kingdom, you see how far up it goes there, maintained Roman law. They maintained the Code of Theodosius, applied only to Catholics, but then when the, the two peoples mixed, it would apply to everyone. And that is how Spain and southern France maintained Roman law. Whereas in the domain of the Franks above the Loire Valley, it was Germanic law that prevailed. But Roman law prevailed in the south, and it is Roman law that was then taken over by the church slowly. So that through thanks to the king of the, of the Visigoths, actually, the church was able to inherit the code of law of the Romans, which ultimately becomes canon law. Latin survives, or does it? And where? Next map, please. Now, this map is interesting. It shows you where Latin survived into the modern Romance languages. There's Western Romania and Eastern Romania. That's not the point just now. So the question I'm going to answer now is, and it also corresponds to Catholic Christianity, or to Christianity, shall we say, what happened? The Slavs took over a lot of the East, but I'm going to concentrate on the West. These Germanic tribes, sometimes pagan, not always, were able to push back the Latin sphere of influence, but only so far. Otherwise, soon enough, the Visigoths and the Franks and the Burgundians and the Ostrogoths adopted Latin. Some of these people had for two generations, even before the official fall of the Roman Empire. Okay, the official fall of the Roman Empire, you'll notice I didn't give a date, did I? There is an official date. Okay, it's 476 when Odoacer deposes Romulus Augustulus, the last official emperor of the West. But really, on the ground, it had been a process that had taken 
from I, I guess about well from 410 sack of Rome, but even before the sack of Rome in 410 in 407, the administrative services of Gaul came down to the south. So there's kind of a shrinking of things. England is lost to a very fierce tribe of people, the Angles, the Saxons, the Jutes, who colonize Britain pretty much the way that the English colonized Australia. Okay, not much blending of peoples, if you see what I mean, or Tasmania. They essentially massacred everyone along their way. And for that reason, Britain lost its Christianity and its Latinity. Some Christian pockets remained, thanks to the Irish, who were there to evangelize them back. But it's no longer Roman. And the, the Anglo-Saxons who settled there after a few generations, they see the remains of Roman architecture and figure, well, there must have been a race of giants that built this. No man can build this. It became mythical. The finger that sticks out of France, well, that's where a lot of the British fled to, and they brought their Celtic language with them to Brittany. Romania was lost, but somehow they managed to remain Roman. It's a very different kind of Romance language over there, but they remained. As for Christianity, and I'll end there, and how about North Africa? You'll notice at the bottom of the map, our map is all black. They remained Christian and Latin until the Muslims came. So what is left of the Roman Empire? There's the church, of course, although not everywhere. I mean, if you have a truly anti-Christian system, as in North Africa, it's going to go away, ultimately, as did North African Romance languages. But a lot remains too. Coin remains, although bimetallism is going to die out for a while. We're only going to be using silver coins. But the West retains the Roman system of coinage, more or less. The denarius becomes a penny. Well, that's why it's D. But in North Africa, the denarius becomes the dinar. That remains. The Roman forum becomes the marketplace. In North Africa, the souk. The Roman baths are going to vanish in use in the West. The very last aqueduct stops working at about the time of Charlemagne. So that takes us until the late 8th, 8th century. But you can always take a bath in the river. In North Africa, not so easy. So they're going to keep the baths to this day, except they'll just call them Turkish baths. And if you go, this is okay, this is Eastern. If you go to Constantinople, Istanbul, you can go to the bath there, a Turkish bath that was built before Islam. It's still in operation. I've been there. I, I went into the hot room, the cold room, got a massage, the whole bit. And so this shell that allowed for Christianity to develop, Thanks to the Romans, to go back to the beginning, who somehow had just the right set of skills to become the empire they became. Adaptability, learning, absorbing, changing. Also, a lot of good luck. They provided this system to Christianity, and then Christianity was able to use that in turn to spread the law. And even, I'll end with this, the uh, emperor of Rome had a religious function among the pagans. He was called Pontifex Maximus, and that title passed over to the Pope in the late 4th century. So that is how Rome then conquered the barbarians and gave them to Christ. And that's my talk tonight. Excellent, uh, Doctor. Thank you so much uh, for, for your careful careful preparation and, uh, and all of the effort that went into this talk. 
you did an amazing job of condensing all of Roman history into a single hour. I'm very impressed. I I, I uh, went a bit over. I was really afraid I, I wouldn't be able to because I if I have a fault is being a bit too detail oriented, I get lost in the weeds a bit. And I think I did some of that today. But my point was to give you the broad yeah. scheme of why it is that uh, well why why do we worship in latin i mean right right no it's an incredibly important uh topic and so i mean this basically served as a general introduction to to the history of rome and and uh you know just before we got started i i have kind of been thinking about this all the way through you know why is it that we study history because of course you know we're here at the beginning of our first quarter of our curriculum year history is a prominent topic and uh, and I'm so glad that we read that that so many of you are with us tonight because it's more than a mere curiosity for us it's uh, you, some people you, you know might instrumentalize the study of history it's just for not repeating the mistakes of the past that's why we look back at it well of course that's that's an important important lesson you can take from it but uh, but even more importantly it is it's a matter of our own identity you know why do you ask your grandfather to tell you a story um not 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 only so that you don't make the same mistakes that he did but because in in some sense his life is a part of yours and uh, and you're learning about uh, your own history your own identity and it and so you're connecting it to the church and setting it up to the church is uh, just so powerfully motivating uh, for for opening this area of study up to us. So I hope that everybody will go and you know see the every 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 little bit that you mentioned is worthy of a course on its own. You know the Punic Wars and uh, the 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 time of the Republic and then Caesar and yeah all of it all of it. But uh, you gave us a a great launching point uh, for all of those studies, and I hope that everybody um, just begins here and, and continues. Uh, of course, we'll we'll have Dr. Papino back many times for to hopefully cover more of those topics with us at the institute. Um, we already have. If you just go search uh, through our our library, of course, Dr. Papino taught uh, our history courses. So if you want more of this, I would direct you over there. Uh, you can immediately get started with uh, with those. So um, we're going to move into Q and A here. We have a couple of minutes. We'll start with this one from Nicholas, Dr. He asks, uh, you mentioned repeatedly that the Romans did not do human sacrifice, but there are several instances of human sacrifice in Roman history, for example, after the Battle of Cannae. Along with this, the Romans did practice uh, infant exposure. How should we take the Roman distaste for human sacrifice with these practices? Yes, thank you very much for asking that. I'll begin with the, the latter business. Exposure is terrible. Just so everyone knows, um, when parents didn't want to keep the baby, or the dad alone didn't want to keep the baby, he, he got to choose this, they would just leave the kid on the side of a mountain or at a crossroads in the hopes, well, someone will pick him up. And that's terrible. It's not quite sacrifice, though. So I want to get back to the Battle of Cannae and others. The Romans had known animal sacrifice, uh, human sacrifice, it's true. And as late as Cannae, very unusually, they did it. But it, it originally, in fact, Gladiatorial games did begin as being um, sacrifices of a sort, in the sense that two men fought to the death for a god. So there, you could call that uh, human sacrifice. But by the time of, say, Cicero, by the time of the late Republic, they had developed a detestation for it. And there's a side note. Um, and uh, so, for example, in um, when they took over Gaul, they encountered it. 
and they were horrified because for them that was something that they had done 200 years before, but not anymore, you see. And um, so there's another point there, by the way, it's a general point for history, is to remember that the when we say the Romans, we are talking as, I mean, I condensed it into one hour or tried to, but think of the scope of time we're talking about. So there was a point when they had had sacrificed human beings, but later on, no good. Um, and this business with the uh, the North Africans, it's a very different. The sacrifice of Cana was very unusual, and it certainly was not the the routine sacrifice of children to appease the gods. That was Carthaginian, not Roman. Yeah, yeah, and and actually, you you mentioned the span of time. Teresa actually wrote in asking if you could just confirm. So we we basically just looked at a thousand years, right, going back from about five hundred BC up to to nearly five hundred AD. Oh yeah, yeah. Things, and and you think you know, it's a bit like saying, well, how how old was George Washington? Well, there's no such question here. Well, when you know, James up here on screen, go ahead and uh, jump in here. Hello, James. Thanks, Doctor. That was that was very good. You. Um, you you mentioned something right at the last of your uh, of your talk that the that the shell of the Roman Empire was done. There's a philosophical question that usually asks which came first, the chicken or the egg, and it just seems to me that God came first. He developed the egg. The egg came to maturation. The embryo of Christianity grew. The egg split open. Christianity developed within the world that it was there. Rome was no longer needed. The eggshell was discarded. But some of the principles that were nurtured in the egg went along with the embryonic thing that became Christianity. You know, I, I, re I, I really like your analogy. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of true. Yeah, but it's true. But also, now, but the Roman Empire left its print on Christianity. I think that's what you mean there. So it's not the shell didn't just go away, but it did imprint. And that's absolutely the case. So sometimes people, and this is arguable, people make the point that, well, if Christ had been born in, in, in China, we would have a Chinese Christianity and we, we'd use Mandarin instead of Latin and so forth. Fine. But the fact is that God chose the fullness of time there and then for his purposes so that the Roman Empire did give as a legacy certain institutions and things to to the to to the to the Christian church but it go, it went both ways well I didn't I couldn't get into the details but but once Christianity became legal over the course of the 4th century Christianity modified deeply the laws of empire and so before you get to the to the collapse of the Roman empire the laws have changed from pagan to Christian divorce law uh, adoption law, law concerning slaves, the death penalty, a bunch of things completely changed. I'll just give one example of how you can see the Christianization of the law. There had been punishments in the Roman Empire which required the branding of the face of the criminal, certain kinds of theft. You're branded on the face. Christianity changed that. The law said, because man is made in the image of likeness of God, it is a sacrilege to deform his face. Therefore, we shall no longer... Branding of the face is no longer a punishment for this crime. So you see that sort of stuff where it's it's not just a there is a greater sense of justice, but even a truly theological influence in the laws. So yes, it goes both ways, like a hand holding a hand, and they each shape each other. 
Fantastic. Thank you, doctor. Uh, This next question from Dave, he asks, how did the Romans keep track of their history? Why is it that we know so much of their empire and, you know, not much of of other previous empires? (laughs) Very good question. On the one hand, well, compared, say, to Egypt, Rome began late enough in the development of record keeping that they the early part of their empire was already at a time when globally we knew how to record keeping existed so they could you know imitate the greeks or imitate what you know the, the east in general so that's one thing and they're astoundingly good record keepers the romans i mean it's something that they were known for at the time and so even to this day you dig up places where things are preserved such as in egypt and you keep running across receipts and lists and uh, things in triplicate. So to give you an example, the record keeping, and they also kept, okay, they did have annales and chronicles. You had to, for every year, you had to write down the main events, the omens that were seen, you know, on this date, a cow ran into a house, went up to the second floor and jumped out the window that would be written in there, and who the consuls were and what happened on under them. So that it's, um, you can read it. And then so there were these annals, these records kept from very, very early on. And then in the first century BC and AD and second century AD, the men who set out to write the history went to the archives, people like Livy and Sallus and Suetonius and Cornelius Nepos and others went to the arch. And Claudius the emperor actually was very interested in this sort of thing too. And they would just use these archives to write the histories, which then we now have because they were copied on papyrus and then parchment and then by the Catholic monks have reached us. That's how we know so much. And to give you an example of record keeping, you know how under Emperor Decius in 250, you had to sacrifice to the gods or you would, you know, that's how they they sussed out the Christians. Well, when you did that, when you went to put your grain of incense on the brazier, you were given, there was a form in triplicate. You were given a copy stamped and signed a copy was kept at the municipal archives and another copy sent up to Rome. They had that kind of administration. And we find these in the ground. We find so-and-so sacrifice. I witnessed him, so-and-so sacrificing, signed, stamped, and uh, copies of this are kept at the archives of this town and in Rome. So they were a, really a true record-keeping people, which again, the church has inherited. In fact, it's been a problem in the church. This is the paperwork. Uh, so they ha- they have rules where you have to burn the paperwork after ten years or whatever. So yeah. that's it, just the record keeping Romans, and that they were so late on the scene, really. It's an incredibly interesting thing. I mean, the idea of historiography, just in general. I mean, of course, we are in this time in which we live. Maybe the average person is not very historically aware. Although you know, we actually know quite a bit compared to maybe how other cultures see themselves. Uh, but then, of course, academically, we have so much that we can tap into libraries of all of the stuff. And you think back, how how would other peoples have done this? And 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 it's interesting when you start to get into it, how different cultures, you know, different right. factors, how how you saw uh, history and you know, contrasting with the with the Greeks and thinking of history more of, of the snake eating its own tail, whereas the Romans saw it as going somewhere because they right. that was their mentality as a people. Yeah. But then the administrative state, you know, a simple practical detail that makes it so easy for us nowadays to to piece it together. Now, this having been said, I, I believe the Chinese Empire also was really good at record keeping, and they had a whole 
imperial bureaucratic system as well. So it's not just Rome. But going that far back, yeah, the Romans are pretty well documented to, to go that far back. And um, it's, I mean, there has to be some oral tradition, but they turn to writing really, really quickly. Shifting gears a little bit uh, to a, a slightly different genre, Tom asked if Virgil's history of Rome in his Aeneid, is that more mythology or or more history of, or of course, you know, some sort of blend? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a blend, but he's, I mean, he's making up all this stuff. Yeah. It's a poem. It's a work of art. I wouldn't rely on the bare text of the, I'm glad you brought, I happen to be reading the Aeneid with my seminarians at the seminary right now. We're in book four. And it's the tragedy of Dido, the queen of Carthage. It's interesting. Anyway, I'm not going to get into Virgil too much, but it's interesting how he sets this whole thing in Carthage, Virgil does, at a time when Carthage, as Carthage no longer existed, when Virgil is writing, Carthage is the fourth largest Roman town in the empire. But he's going back to when it was founded by Dido, a queen who came from Tyre and Sidon from Phoenicia. It's amazing. No, Virgil, it's it's a romance, okay. I wouldn't, and and a lot of romances in the same style have been written. You may have heard of so Aeneas, the founder of the Roman race, is a Trojan prince because you have to connect it, of course, to the great foundational myth of the Greeks because they're older and they have the prestige culture. Likewise, they say this is Brutus, and he went out of the Mediterranean and founded a land of his own, Britannia, which, okay. So you get the idea and the gods are in there. No, I, I mean, some of the stuff, of, of course, reflects actual historical events, uh, but a lot of it doesn't. So no, I wouldn't use Virgil as a history book. It's a, yeah, the, the historical context to him writing that is is fascinating. Oh, to yeah. All I, sorts I, of the angles that he's playing. Yeah, for, maybe one day we can have you talk about uh, the Aeneid at the oh, ICC. I like Virgil. A lot of fun. Although stuff. it's not the real item. The real item is Homer. Okay, it is. How to yeah. burst your bubbles? But the real item is the Iliad, ultimately, and the Odyssey. That's the real and and going behind those some of the bits and pieces we have of of uh, poetry from even before the great tapestry that Homer wove mm. from what he had as as disparate bits. Virgil, okay, he's great. I love the Latin, but he's kind of faking it. I mean, it's not, it's not a real epic. It's not a traditional epic that comes from the soul of the Roman people. It's just some guy who's writing something in that style that's kind of a propaganda piece for Augustus. Right. So, okay, but I'm going to stop there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cheap Roman knockoffs aside, we did recently do a, a study of the Odyssey with uh, Dr. Anthony Essel, and so that's, oh. that's linked in the library if folks want to check that out and read read the Odyssey with uh, with Dr. Essel. That's a good time, um, Doctor. Let's let's wrap up here. Well, well, but of course, have to get one last question in, and that of course is for next steps. Um, folks asking if you could recommend a good book on the okay. subject. For, yeah, for now the- it depends on what you're interested in. The classic book I rely on, I'm a bit old-fashioned, okay, is this one, A History of Rome, by these two chaps there. You see their names? Harry and Scullard. Yeah, and some of the stuff, this is, I think, the 80s, maybe? I mean, some of the details, of course, have been um, updated since. But as an overarching narrative, you're really able to follow. So, for example, if you wanted to check Virgil against what we know from archaeology and so forth, you'd go there. I mean, there are many books on Rome. Here's a more colorful one, The Roman World, if you're interested, not so much in history through time, but the Roman world as it was, how these people lived and think and so forth. 
for the later Roman Empire, which is kind of what I'm fascinated by, how did it go away? Was one of the questions that bugged me as a kid. And that's why I kind of emphasized on that. Averil Cameron's pretty good. Here's her book. So you get to late antiquity. When does that begin? Depends. But it's out of the classical age. And Peter Brown, with some caveats, wrote this book as kind of a coffee table book. And it really gives you an idea of what it was like towards the end of the empire. I could give you the other books. There's a massive two-volume books that tells you about all the institutions of the late empire, the army, fiscality, uh, so taxation, uh, the economy, everything, 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 the running of things by A.H.M. Jones. When you have a name like Jones, you have to have at least three initials, because otherwise. And that's this massive thing, very detailed and very good. If you want to read a somewhat partisan but beautifully written book, I mean, this is the granddaddy of all of this late antiquity business. That has to be Edward Gibbon, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. With caveats, he thought that the Roman Empire fell because of Christianity. I didn't mention that theory. He thought when the best and the brightest worship martyrs instead of generals and heroes, you're not going to do too well on the battlefield. Okay. That was kind of his basic idea. And, but the, the, and he's the first one, really, in the English language to have put together a sweeping history of the Roman Empire from about the year 285 to the fall of Constantinople. And he read everything. I don't know how he did it. He wrote it when he was in Switzerland because he was he was going to he wrote in the 1700s, okay. That's why it's a classic. He was turning Catholic at Oxford, which you couldn't do in those days because he was reading the fathers of the church in Greek and Latin. So his dad sent him to live with a Calvinist pastor in Geneva or near Geneva. And there he found a library with everything. All the Byzantine historians were there and all the Roman historians. And he wrote this massive thing. It's glorious English. It's beautiful to read. And he's just wrong about that. And he's also very ironic and funny. I would recommend it. If you're, if you're the kind of person who likes to you know, spend two hours on a Sunday afternoon reading and go through a book or every night. I would go with that too. It's just beautiful. But you have to correct it. I mean, the scholarship is quite dated, of course, 18th century. You have to get back to more of these recent things here. Well, that's fantastic. Yeah, that's a great starting point. And, and I'm sure that we do have a lot of those sorts of folks here. In, oh, uh, I'm sure. And once you've read. done, once you've read your history and you want to know, then you can go to this. Lutar, you to get into the lives of specific great men. It's thick, but you can just pick. And he, he compares a Greek and Roman, sometimes older, more recent. And I have John Dryden's translation, which, of course, is a classic in its own right. John Dryden. Love him. Okay. He also, uh, was it he translated the, the Aeneid, actually, to, into English verse? Uh-huh. Yeah. So, which I'm, I'm reading concurrently with the Latin. So, yeah, there's no end to, to reading about. And we're in their shade, I think. That's why we think about the Roman Empire so much. To answer the question we asked at the beginning, and maybe we'll end there, why are men you know, sitting on their porch drinking a pint of Pabst Blue Ribbon, looking into the sunset? Why do they think about the Roman Empire? I think it's because it, it is the standard of greatness on the one hand, and because also it went through a fall. And I think a lot of people today are afraid we're doing the same. On that note, 
<laughs> Sorry. You're very positive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, thank you again, doctor. It, this is, this has been a, an incredibly uh, informative night. And, you know, I'm looking at the comments. Rose says she could be listening all night. And, uh, and I think a lot of us would be in the same boat, but we'll wrap up here. Uh, so thank you for, um, for your time with us tonight, doctor. Thank you everybody else for joining us. Hope that we'll see you back again soon at the ICC. Doctor, could you uh, close the evening out in prayer this evening? Certainly. I'll do it in Latin again. Okay. In nome Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Gloria Patri et Filio et Spiritui Sancto, sicuterat in principio est nunc et semper, et in secula seculorum. Amen. In nome Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers and family members. To learn more, get involved and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.